Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The book of Genesis, chapter 20, we're reading verses 1 to 18. So we read together from verse 1. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed at Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead. Because of the woman you have taken, she is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return to her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials And when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should not be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother." Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham. And he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his slave girls, so they could have children again. For the Lord had closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Well, uh, good evening. Do keep Genesis 20 open in front of you. We'll spend the next few minutes um, thinking about that together. Uh, As we begin, um, let me pray for the Lord's help. And so let's pray. 
Our Lord God, we thank you that all of these things have been written for us, for our instruction, that we might learn to trust in your promises when we hear them. And we pray that this evening, as we hear your word, you might help us to be those who respond in faith and obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, how do you feel about the mission of the church to, uh, to live distinctively for Christ and to boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus widely in our world while we wait for Jesus to return? When we meet together, like this evening, we, we sing of God's promises, we hear the Bible read, we pray together, we spur one another on, and the idea of having that great commission to live as disciples and make disciples, well, it feels like the most enormous privilege in the world, doesn't it, to have great promises and to be able to share them, and it feels like a joy, but if we're honest, sometimes um, on a Monday morning, or on a Friday night, it feels harder to live a distinctively Christian life and to speak boldly of Jesus. I think for many of us, uh, we may find it um, very um, uh, encouraging and a great privilege when we're together, but as we go out from one another and we're apart, we can find that it's surprisingly hard, scary even, to be a distinctive witness, boldly speaking and living for Jesus Christ. It might be that um, where you work, the idea of openly sharing your faith with someone is something that just seems well offside. You know, I think of um, a friend of mine called Ben. Um, his church was having a, a mission week, and so he got some little um, tracts that explained why he was a Christian, and he went round before work one Monday morning, and he put one on everyone's desk in the whole office, and he put a little invitation to the mission week as well, and then he got on with his day's work. And um, uh, 9.30 came around, and an email came in from the HR department calling him to a disciplinary meeting. So 10 to 10, you can imagine how he felt as he went up the stairs to the floor where HR was and was called in by management and told to apologize for what he'd done. But sometimes it can feel hard, scary, can't it, to be, to be open and bold about being a Christian. Imagine how Ben felt as he was told to apologize to his colleagues for what he'd done. And it may be that your office feels like that. Maybe that's your worry. Uh, maybe there are friends that um, every time before you see them, you're saying to yourself, um, this time I'm going to distinctively, I'm going to stand out for Jesus when, when I'm with them. And yet as you spend time with them, it just feels like that confidence evaporates. And before you know it, you're just going with the flow with them. Uh, it, it may be that you're here this evening and actually you feel like living as a clear Christian uh, isn't such a hard thing um, and yet there are next steps that do feel hard and risky. Maybe you've, um, maybe you've felt the, um, the call of the gospel to go and serve Christ overseas or to, um, to head off to one of the church plants like Doncaster and um, in the meeting you felt just passionately moved, but, but as you went home and thought about the details of what it would involve, the costs, the risks, it started to feel very hard and very scary 
to live boldly for Christ in that way. And, and actually, um, it became something that you just put on the shelf. Uh, it can feel hard and scary, can't it? And, and if, that's, if that's you, if like me, sometimes you find it um, a challenge to live and speak distinctively for Jesus, then Genesis 20 is a text for us. Because it's a passage that is there to give us confidence in the God of promise, that he's a God worth living and speaking for. Uh, Abraham, of course, was a man who knew great promises from God. And God had promised him back in Genesis 12 that he would give him um, from his family a great people to live in God's place and to experience the blessing of a fixed relationship with God. Uh, Really, it was the seeds of the promise of a whole restored world to Abraham Uh, He was also a man who knew what it was to have a great commission from God. God had said to Abraham, um, go to the land of Canaan and be a blessing so that anyone who blesses you, I will bless, the Lord had said. And, um, And Genesis 20 is a passage from Abraham's life that is full of surprises, but they're surprises that teach us to trust God in his promises and to trust him in his commission as well. Uh, The first surprise for us is the unexpected faithlessness of Abraham. The unexpected faithlessness of Abraham. Um, Just have a look at verse one with me for a moment. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. And then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. Now, if you've been been with us as we've been journeying through the book of Genesis together, then um, you will know that Abraham is a giant of the faith. Um, Here is a man who trusted God's promises at great cost and for many years. Um, He's he's been moving around the land of Canaan, walking with the Lord, trusting his promises. Um, Just back in Genesis 18, we see him praying for Sodom and Gomorrah and essentially asking the Lord, remember your promises and don't sweep away the righteous with the wicked. A man of great faith, and yet, and yet as we come to Genesis 20, we see him fail. Because if you've been with us, as we've been traveling through the book of Genesis, you will know that we have been here before. Because back in Genesis 12, Abraham was in Egypt, and was terrified of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, And so he lied about Sarah and said, she's not my wife, she's just my sister. And Pharaoh took Sarah and married her. And so here we are again with a a giant of the faith. And yet as readers, we just want to put our head in our hands and say, Abraham, Abraham, how has it come to this? And I take it that seeing how Abraham fails in Genesis 20 is going to help us to see something about ourselves. Because here, if a a seasoned and mature believer can fail in this area of his life again and again, then I take it there are lessons here for us in the unexpected faithlessness of Abraham. Uh, The Lord had promised to protect Abraham and to be a blessing through him. And yet here, just as in Egypt, it seems like Abraham is going to be more of a curse than a blessing. So why does Abraham fail? 
Well, just look at the way he explains himself to Abimelech in verse 11 and following. Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place and they'll kill me because of my wife. You see, here he sees um, a hostile environment. He says to himself, there'll be no one here in Gerar who fears the Lord in any way. And so um, I'm going to have to do something to avoid being killed. He's, um, he's terrified, frankly. And, um, and we mustn't underplay quite how scary it must have been for Abraham to live in the sort of circumstances that he was. Um, here is a man moving around a pagan nation, constantly um, concerned about what will happen next. You know, um, if, um, you were, if you were with us in Genesis 19 as we looked at Sodom and Gomorrah, you can kind of sympathize with Abraham. Because there you have the messengers of God come to town and all the men of the town gather to horribly abuse the messengers. And so Abraham looks at a hostile world and he's terrified. Um, In fact, there's a great irony in verse 11, isn't there? He says, surely there's no fear of God in this place. But actually, he's far more frightened about the place than he is about God and what God will think. And... um, uh, and he goes on to explain, I mean, it's a brilliant exercise in rationalization, isn't it? Verse 12, besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and then she became my wife. Uh, it's, not, it's not technically a lie, Abimelech. I just left out some of the key details, like the fact that we're married, um, I mean, it's striking, isn't it, how quickly he's able to rationalize this sin and this lie. And of course, um, of course disobeying God always seems like um, the rational thing to do if we do it, or we wouldn't do it, would we? But notice what he goes on to say in verse 13, because I think here we get to the heart of why Abraham fails to listen to God here and obey his commission. Verse 13 When God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, to Sarah, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Okay, so you've already told Abimelech it wasn't technically a lie. Now your defense is, we've done it lots of times before. It seems to have worked. Okay, so it's not a great defense. But notice the way he describes God and Sarah in this verse, because I think it gets to the heart of Abraham's heart here and what's going on with him. Verse 13, when God caused me to wander from my father's household. Now, it's a very negative phrase in Genesis. It's a phrase that's used of of Adam and Eve leaving the garden in Genesis 3 and of Cain uh, wandering wandering the earth. It's, um, It's a phrase that makes you want to sit up and say, Abraham, hold on. Didn't God promise you a whole land and send you there to enjoy it? God hasn't sent you wandering. He sent you to Canaan with a promise. And yet Abraham has turned it into a negative view of God. He caused me to wander. And then he says to Sarah, this is how you can show your love for me. And the word for love there is the word for covenant faithfulness. 
It's the word that the Psalms frequently use of uh, God to speak of his steadfast love for his people, his commitment to them. See, here is, uh, here is Abraham saying, actually, God sent me out to this place where there's no fear of God, and I need Sarah to um, keep me safe. She'll provide me with the covenant faithfulness that I need. See, a negative view of God and an alternative plan for blessing. It's... Um, it's the attitude that um, uh, the theologian Sinclair Ferguson describes as the great lie. The lie that God is a father who cannot be trusted because he does not love me. The great lie that God is a father who cannot be trusted because he does not love me. It's the lie of the Garden of Eden. It's the lie that we believe that actually when God has given us promises and commands, they're not for our good, they're somehow to spoil our lives. Now look, um, I'd imagine that the, um, the teenagers uh, over here are absolute angels at home. You know, I know one or two of you, and I know that you're the sort of guys who would, and girls who would be angels at home, but my confession this evening is that when I was in secondary school, I was not always a delight to be around. Uh, and um, sometimes I could actually be quite stroppy. And um, sometimes my parents would either um, tell me to do something or tell me not to do something. And in my sort of um, my stroppiness, I assumed that basically the reason they were telling me that was to ruin my life in some fundamental way. And, um, and it's this attitude, uh, the, the sort of stroppy teenager attitude that doesn't see a loving parent um, telling you something for your good, that so often um, shapes our hearts towards God, actually. It's an attitude that sees him as a father who cannot be trusted because he does not love me. Not giving me promises and warnings and commands because he wants my blessing and good, and the good for the world, but because he somehow wants to fundamentally ruin my life. And it's the attitude of Abraham here. It's, um, it's a warning to us in our thinking about God. If a seasoned and trusting believer like Abraham can have an area of his life where he thinks, I can't trust God with that, well, it raises the question for us, doesn't it? Are there areas of our lives Happy to trust God with the whole thing, but, but, but not, my, um, not my career, not my popularity with my friends at school, not, not Friday nights with the sports team. Is, is there some area that we're not willing to trust that he will be good to us in? Uh, of course, God hasn't promised us, uh, like he promised Abraham, um, protection in a straightforward way. But just hear what Jesus says in Mark 10 and verse 29. Um, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, no one, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. And do you hear what Jesus is promising there? That to live boldly for him and to speak his gospel, whatever it costs you, will be worth it a hundred times now 
and even more into eternity as we enjoy eternal life with the Father that we trust in heaven. Um, I remember a, a, a difficult conversation with a guy uh, at my last church, um, painfully honest, that's why it was difficult really, where he said to me, Andy, no one where I work knows that I'm a Christian. You know, he was a keen member of our church family, and he just said to me in that moment of honesty, no one where I work knows that I'm a Christian. And he went on, I worry that any of my cl- if any of my clients knew what I really believed, that they would all look for, um, they would all take their business elsewhere and look for someone else. And it can feel like a hard and a scary thing to live boldly for Jesus, to stand out, to speak for him. We can fear what will happen. Uh, that guy wasn't um, foolish to think that. Actually, he'd seen someone in a very similar situation lose many clients for standing out for Jesus. And yet the question is whether we believe God in his promise that whatever we might lose to, to live for him, to speak for him, will be worth it a hundred times in this life and many more in eternal life in the heavenly kingdom. You know, the warning of Abraham's faithlessness here is that there can be areas of our lives where we don't trust him. And the challenge is, will we see that he's a father who loves us? The answer of Genesis 20 is an emphatic yes, we can trust him. And that brings us to our second big surprise in the text. Because our second big surprise is the unexpected faith of Abimelech. The unexpected faith of Abimelech. Uh, You see, um, just for context, Gerar in verse 1, where Abraham goes, is um, going to become the land of the Philistines. You know, we've met various of um, the people of Israel's future enemies um, in um, 1936 to 38. We've met the um, Moabites and the Ammonites. Well, here to complete the set is a Philistine an enemy king, and, um, and so Abraham tells his lie in verse 1, Abimelech takes Sarah in verse 2, but the shocks start in verse 3. Uh, God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, you're as good as dead because the woman you've taken, she is a married woman. The, um, the old King James Version has um, God come to Abimelech in the dream and say, you're a dead man. And don't you love it when a Hollywood line actually turns out to come from the Bible? You, know, you, sort of, you imagine the dream a bit like a sort of Wild West saloon scene. And God confronts Abimelech and says, you're a dead man. Because Sarah is Abraham's wife. And if you were with us in Sodom and Gomorrah, what we expect is for Abimelech to shake his fist at the Lord and it's going to be pistols at dawn because he, there's no fear of God in the land. That's certainly what Abraham thinks. But what we get, verse 5, is a man pleading his innocence. Uh, verse 4, rather. Now Abimelech had not gone near her and so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she's my sister? Didn't she also say, he's my brother? I've done this thing with a clear conscience and clean hands. Far from shaking his fist at God, here is a man on his knees pleading his case that he's not guilty. This pagan king, this Philistine. And we begin to see why in verse 6. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, 
and so I've kept you from sinning against me, and that is why I did not let you touch her. See, here is a God who is at work in the life of a pagan Philistine king, preparing him for this moment. Here is a God who is um, preparing him, um, not only um, sovereignly in the background, but then confronting him with the truth. And there's a massive irony here, because, of course, in Abimelech, we see far greater fear of the Lord than we did in Abraham. We get this promise and warning in verse 7. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. You see, a promise and a warning. And verse 8, early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. (laughs) You see, Abraham, this great man of faith, seems to fear the Philistines more than he fears God whereas Abimelech the last person we expect when he hears the promise and warning him and his courtyard very much fear the Lord and notice what God warns him to do or promises him um, about return the man's wife for he is a prophet and he will pray for you and you will live so God gives him a clear instruction and um, and the key thing here really is that, that God, God had not only promised to keep Abraham safe, he'd promised that the blessing to Abraham would overflow to the nations, that unlikely and unexpected people like Abimelech would be brought in. And we're going to see here that God keeps his promises. He keeps that one. Because, of course, Abimelech confronts Abraham in verse 9. You know, it's a scene like being brought into the headmaster's office. The king is on his throne, and um, he's got these questions for Abraham. What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you've brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? They're words very similar to Pharaoh back in Genesis 12. Here is Abraham being dressed down by the king of Gerar. You've done things to me that should never be done. What was your reason for doing this? And Abraham, before the king's throne, well, he begins to line up the excuses. I said to myself, there's surely no fear of God in this place and and they'll kill me. And and it wasn't technically a lie. And, um, And we've done it before. And hold on, stop. No fear of God in this place. And Abraham, Abimelech picks up on those words of Abraham and responds in the most remarkable way, doesn't he? Because in verses 14 to 16, he frankly showers Abraham and Sarah with good things. Verse 14, sheep and cattle and slaves, and he returns Sarah. And, um, and verse 15, my land is before you. Live wherever you like. See, here is a king who um, we expect him, like Pharaoh, to be, to be furious you know, when, um, when Abraham came to Pharaoh, Pharaoh basically said, you stink, take your wife and get out of my kingdom. But Abimelech, well, Abimelech pays homage to Abraham and he says, here's my kingdom, live wherever you want. Because you see, if this really is God's prophet, 
if this is God's messenger, God's man, then Abimelech will do everything he can to line up with him. He'll do everything he can to stand with him. He pays homage to him. He's concerned for um, any offense against Sarah to be vindicated. And so the story ends with Abraham praying to God and God healing Abimelech and his family so that they could have children again. And that blessing to Abraham overflows to this unlikely pagan Philistine king. And you see, God's promise that he would reach these nations and that they would be brought into the circle of his blessing is kept in spite of Abraham, in spite of his faithfulness. God is faithful. Genesis 20 shows us that he is a God who keeps his promises. Yes, even promises to bring in unlikely and unexpected people like Abimelech to receive his blessing. And you know, um, Galatians 3.14 tells us that the blessing to Abraham found its fulfillment in the gift of the Holy Spirit given to unlikely people from every nation as we trust in Jesus Christ. Now, what should we do with this? What, what should we take away into Monday morning or Friday night from this? Uh, let me say a word firstly. Um, if you're, you're here this evening and actually you feel like a very unlikely person to be in church this evening, uh, I don't know the reason, uh, maybe, uh, maybe too wayward, too bad, maybe too rational, too scientific, maybe too old, too young, whatever reason, you just feel like, um, you know, if you could talk to you from five years ago or five weeks ago and say that you would be someone who started coming regularly to church, well, that guy wouldn't have believed you because it's so unlikely. And yet there's something in this and you want to look into it. You know, you can feel God m- might just be at work in your life. Well, let Abimelech be an example to you in Genesis 20. You see, here is a God who loves to welcome in unlikely people, who's promised to rescue people from every nation and background. And Abimelech will do anything he can to line up with God's prophet, his messenger. You know, the promise to Abraham, it found its fulfillment in Abraham's greatest descendant, the true prophet of God, who was actually God come amongst us, Jesus Christ. If you're here this evening, and to be honest, it feels to you just an unlikely thing you're even here. Maybe you're not quite sure why you're here. Well, will you take from Genesis 20 to put aside any circumstance that would stop you and make every effort you can to know Jesus, and to line up with him. Come along this Easter. Come to all of the services. Come to any of them and find out about him. But look, um, just lastly as I close, it might be that you're here this evening and um, you would say, well, I am someone who's trusted the Lord for a long time. Uh, You know, like Abraham, I've been living by faith for many years or, or maybe just a few, but you would say clearly a Christian believer Well, let the story of Abraham and Abimelech be an encouragement to you as well as a challenge. 
the Lord loves to bring in unexpected and unlikely people. He's promised that the blessing to Abraham will go to all nations and every kind of person. Uh, I don't know if you remember my friend Ben from the beginning of the sermon, who um, we left uh, in the HR department being told to apologize. And, um, uh, and um, as, he, um, as he was about to leave, they told him that, in fact, they wanted him to apologize personally to everyone who worked in the firm that he worked for. And so um, he, he left with a heavy heart, but he realized quite quickly that actually what his employer had done was agreed to pay for him to spend the next three days telling everyone that he worked with why he was a Christian. And you know, some of them hated, it, hated him for it, but a small group of them came along to that mission week And there are a few of them who are walking with the Lord today because they became Christians as a result of that. And look, it's not always going to work out exactly how in our better moments we dream that it will. But two promises that God makes. We've seen in Mark 10 that whatever it costs you, it will be worth it to live boldly and distinctively for Jesus and to share his gospel widely. And we've seen in Genesis 20 that God loves, he's promised to extend his blessing to all kinds of people. Let us not be the people who look around like Abraham and say, surely there's no fear of God in this place. Take heart when it feels hard and it feels scary because God will keep every one of his promises to us. And so it's worth obeying every one of his commands and commissions. Why don't you um, take that Easter invite and invite someone on the bus as Paul was exhorting you. Let me pray. Our loving Father, we thank you that you're a God who keeps every one of your promises. And so we pray that this week, whether it's Monday morning, Friday night, or any other time, when it feels hard and scary to live boldly and distinctively for you, that you might give us confidence in your character and promises. In Jesus' name, amen.